from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer and a fearless explorer. An investigative journalist, he's plumbed the depths of the darkest conspiracies. He's joining me today to talk about his magnum opus, Chaos. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Tom O'Neill. Tom, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Vince. Thank you for joining me on this 17th day of February 2023. I uh, first read your book during the lockdown, believe it or not, and was blown away by the level of intrigue that you were able to uncover with your exhaustive investigation. I happened to come across your interview on Rogan's podcast, which renewed my interest and just finished reading your book for the second time. Wow. So I'm looking forward to digging into this incredible story. Mm -hmm. That's one more time than I've read it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think considering how much time you spent writing it, you would know it inside and out. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Well, so as a little background... You are a journalist that was given the assignment to write a story for Premier Magazine for the 30th anniversary of the Manson murders. Correct. And this was back on March 21st of 1999. Yes. The funny thing is, is that you said that you initially really had no interest in the murders, but upon further investigation, you found some glaring inconsistencies in the way the trial was conducted, among other things. Now, surely somebody before you had to have come up against the same inconsistencies, but for some reason didn't pursue them further. Why do you think that is, and what kept you pursuing them for over 20 years? Well, a few reasons. I mean, other people have questioned it prior to me, but it wasn't really until the Internet that people could get those opinions or theories out. And I actually was barely on the internet when I started this in 99. I was probably just doing emails and not even a whole lot of research. But as far as print publications, I don't think anything in the media, except for Ed Sanders' book, The Family, which actually came out before Helter Skelter. And, you know, it doesn't even mention Bugliosi's book because the book hadn't come out yet. Sanders did do updates. But he didn't question Bugliosi's findings. He just offered his own opinion from reporting and covering the case that things happened differently. So that book was called The Family. But prior to me really diving in, except 
on the evolving internet, there weren't really contrary challenges to the case that I know of. Now there's a number of other books that have come out, mostly from people who are kind of associates or insiders, friends with Charles Manson, the late Charles Manson, you know, Nicholas Schreck is one author, and um, George Stimson, who's the boyfriend of Sandy Good, is another. Susan Atkins, widower, wrote a book as well. So now there is uh, probably at least a half dozen books out there that question the helter-skelter motive, what Bugliosi presented at trial. When I began, like you said, I had no background in any Manson knowledge or history. I just never had been interested. So for me, it was a complete learning curve where I just started doing a general interest story that took a deep, dark turn, you know, a few weeks in once I started catching Bugliosi, who had agreed to be interviewed, and some what I thought were little minor lies, or not even lies, but kind of mistakes. Mm -hmm. And then when I pushed him on it and he stood his ground, that's when things kind of started spiraling into craziness. Yeah, and you mentioned Nicholas Schreck. I saw the, I guess, documentary when he went to prison and spoke with Manson, but I have not read whatever he wrote with regard to Manson. Does his estimation of the motivation conflict with yours? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we disagree. I used to meet with Nick actually very, very early on. Somebody had referred me to him. I can't remember. So I would meet with he and his then wife, Zena, quite a bit. And they gave me a lot of useful kind of launching points and information. But at some point, we went our separate ways, probably about a year after our first meetings and conversations. And, you know, he's written, I think, one book that he updates and revises. And they're very hard to get. I hear that people order them from overseas, where he now is based. And some people have been waiting more than a year. So I only hear what other people say about it, but he seems to think the entire murders were the result of a drug deal gone wrong mm. with Tex Watson as the mastermind. And, you know, if you read my book, that's one of the theories that I look at, and I don't discount that possibility. I'm open to it, actually. What chaos presents is a couple different, I don't know if I want to say theories, I've proven a lot, but I haven't proven anything conclusive, at least not to my satisfaction. And that's one of the reasons the book took so long to write was I kept thinking I was going to get the definitive answer. Mm. And I don't think Nick has either, with all due respect. There's a lot of holes in his argument in his books, although maybe I shouldn't say that having not read the latest one, but just based on my experience with him. Hmm. But uh, yeah, yeah, he was one of the pioneers, I guess, in questioning. And he's gone back and forth on what he thinks happened or didn't happen. But Nick is one of the other persons who's pretty well-known kind of Manson contrarian. Yeah. Yeah, it seemed like, at least from the documentary, that he kind of viewed Manson as almost a spiritual guru. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of the confusing things. He got very close to him. Mm -hmm. And then I don't know what happened, whether there was a falling out or a separation. I think he has a podcast. I know he goes on other podcasts. I'm sure if he listens to this, he'll, <laughs> he'll probably explain himself if he hasn't already. Mm -hmm. But I think he's a Buddhist now. He used to be, unless I'm wrong, a Satanist. His wife, Zena, who I've heard their divorce now, who I actually really liked a lot, was the daughter of Anton LaVey. So they had a fascinating history. Somebody should do a book about the two of them. Not me. I'm too busy <laughs> doing the follow-up to mine. 
Well, I almost feel like I'm being as redundant as redundant can be because the murders are so infamous, but I'm sure there's probably some people out there that aren't that familiar with it. So the Tate-LaBianca murders occurred on August 8th and 9th of 1969. The first murders were at the residence of Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate at the infamous 10050 Cielo Drive. And one of the most unfortunate things was a young man that I believe was only 18, Stephen Parent, happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and was killed in his car before the Manson family members even made it inside the house. Mm -hmm. And... Once inside the house, there was a cast of very interesting people. Can you tell us about the second person they came in contact with, Wojciech Frakowski, and what you found out about him upon further investigation? He was a Polish emigre. I guess he knew Roman from Poland or from Paris. Roman was in Paris for a bunch of years before he emigrated. At some point, Wojciech came after Roman, moved to New York. He met Abigail Folger, the coffee heiress in New York, and the two of them crossed country in 68, I believe, and came to Los Angeles. Uh, Wojciech had a background in working on film production. I think he wanted to be a screenwriter or director, and Roman was friendly with them. They were part of this kind of expat community of Poles in the entertainment industry in Los Angeles. And when Roman and Sharon left their house, you know, they rented starting in February of 69, the house on Cielo Drive. Sharon went off to make a movie in Europe and Roman went off to do prep for Day of the Dolphin, which he was going to direct in London. And they asked Wojciech and Abigail, who were living on Woodstock Road in the Hollywood Hills, whether they would house it for them while they were gone. You know, they were gone from February to July when Sharon came back and Roman Famously kept putting off his return and wasn't there when the murders happened. But Wojciech was a character. He was a fun-loving kind of, you know, party guy Mm -hmm. who I heard a lot of different things about him. No one really seemed to dislike him, but a lot of people thought that he wasn't a good influence on Abigail. He did lots of drugs and invited a lot of shady characters over to the house and associated with a lot of shady characters. But, you know say the same thing about me at that age i'm sure (laughs) he didn't deserve what happened to him so yeah he was the first one to be woken up in the house by tex watson when the group invaded it Mm. and once tex watson instructed susan atkins to tie up frakowski right yeah yeah and he told her to proceed through the house to clear it. She went down the hall and she came to a room where Abigail Folger was and oddly enough, just kind of waved at her and she waved back and she just kept going. I guess they were used to people coming and going. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was a party house and, you know, that is the only source we have for that, obviously, because Abigail's gone is Susan Atkins was the one that told that story. All of the killers have told really changing versions of what happened in their either half hour or 40 minutes in the house when the murders occurred. There's a lot of contradictory narratives, so it's really hard to kind of settle on what was true and what wasn't true. All we know is that Sharon and JC bring her former boyfriend who was visiting 
seemed to have been, you know, died in the house. Mm. There's a lot of evidence that bodies were moved around after the fact, but they died in the house. Steve Parent died in his car, and Abigail and Wojciech had both fled the house, and Watson started stabbing and beating Wojciech inside the house. He got out and got onto the lawn, and Abigail kind of followed him and was chased down by Patricia Krenwinkel, and that's where the two of them were killed out in the front lawn. Mm. And as you mentioned, Sharon Tate, who was in the next room with Jay Sebring, her husband, Roman Polanski, was still traveling abroad scouting for a film. And depending on who you asked, you would hear some people say that they were very much in love and had an ideal relationship. And then depending on others, they may tell you it was a horrific relationship. He was a narcissist. He abused her. Can you uh, talk a little bit about what you found when you investigated that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the difficult thing is that you have to look at everything in the context of the times. Mm. I mean, they were together from about 66, I believe, to Sharon's death. And Roman was a philanderer, but a lot of people had kind of open marriages. Mm. The general consensus was that Sharon was really in love with him and really wanted to have a family and that Roman probably was really in love with Sharon, but he had a wandering eye. And what I found when I started interviewing people who were close to Sharon, mostly her female friends, a couple guys, they were the ones who started telling me these stories of Roman being pretty abusive. Actually, Vince Bugliosi was the first one to tell me that off the record when he told me. But I later found out from lots of other people that you know, the marriage didn't sound like it was so great. Jay Sebring's nephew, Anthony, has made a documentary about his uncle. And in that documentary, he reports that Jay's lawyer went to London to deliver divorce papers from Sharon. I guess, according to Anthony, Jay and Sharon were getting back together and Sharon wanted a divorce Roman. I've never seen any documentary proof of that, but I think Anthony's pretty reliable, so that's possible. It's a tough story to tell the whole story of the Manson killings and what happened before and after. It's like Rashomon. Everybody's got a different narrative or opinion about it. And again, that's why it's a really hard story to report, because you got to kind of distill everything down to what you've been able to prove. Mm. But yeah, I guess in a nutshell, it wasn't an ideal marriage. Okay. So for context on the savageness of these murders, can you kind of give a brief description of the way Frakowski, Folger, Sebring, and Tate were murdered? Uh, yeah, well, Jay Sebring was shot several times in the house. They had looped a rope around his neck and over a beam and attached it to Sharon's neck. Jay actually, he was the first one to kind of physically challenge Tex, mm. and that's when Tex shot him. And then within a few minutes, all kinds of mayhem broke out, and Susan tackled Wojciech and either did or didn't stab him. You know, she changed her story a lot. Watson jumped on Wojciech because he had gotten out of his bindings and was overpowering Susan, and Watson started hitting him with his gun broke the gun grip, chased him out of the house. Abigail freed herself. She was tied up too, got outside. Like I said, Kremwinkle chased her and tackled her and stabbed her dozens of times. When Texas finished stabbing Fakowski outside, he went over and helped Patricia finish off Abigail. 
And then Sharon was alive in the house. And I think Susan had gone back in to kind of watch over her. And then again, you know, they both have told different versions of what happened next. First, Susan, when she was in county jail before she was actually charged with the murders, told cellmates that she had stabbed Sharon to death while she was begging for the life of her baby. By the time of the trial, when she was cooperating with the prosecution to get a lighter sentence, you know, which didn't last by the time the trial began, she had withdrawn her cooperation agreement. Mm. But then she said that she just held Sharon while Tex stabbed Sharon to death. So it's pretty unclear. All we know is Sharon died, I think, seven or eight stab wounds. I can't remember. And believe me, all the Manson people go crazy if you get one little detail wrong. <laughs> uh, but it was pretty horrible. You know, she was eight and a half months pregnant, and I'm sure she was pleading for the life of her baby. She was crying out for her mother. And yeah, it was a massacre. Okay. Well, you alluded to it earlier. Prior to the murders, Polanski and Tate had had a going away party and left the Cielo house to simultaneously go abroad to work on their respective films. And they had Folger and Frakowski at the house house sitting. And they, in turn, <laughs> be it in the late 60s, had some very wild parties that attracted some very unsavory characters. Yeah. So not abnormal for the time, but. With regard to what you found out while investigating these murders, you did find some specific unsavory characters that possibly had ties or could possibly have a motive. Can you talk about, I believe there was three of them? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that wasn't my discovery. Buliosi writes about it in the first chapters of Helter Skelter, that the first suspects were a bunch of low-life drug dealers who he gave pseudonyms in the book. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what the pseudonyms names were, but their real names were Charles Taco, not T-A-C-O, but T-A-C-O-T, and Billy Doyle, Pick Dawson, and Tom Harrigan. And all four of them had been quite close to Wojciech and Gibby. Abigail was called Gibby. Mm -hmm. And at least somewhat friendly with Jay Sebring, and they had all kind of met through the nexus of Mama Cass Elliot from the Mamas and the Papas, whose house was kind of like, actually kind of like the Tate house before Roman and Sharon left. They were only there about a month or so, but they did have lots of small gatherings and it was an open door policy. And Mama Cass had the same scene going on at her place over on Woodstock. Mm. So those four guys, two of them were Canadian, Harrigan and Doyle. Doyle was pretty violent and rough. I think he's still alive, but they were the LAPD's first suspects because they had been at the going away party for Roman and Sharon that occurred the night before they both left the country. And at that party, I think Billy Doyle stepped on Bill Tennant's foot or something, and Bill Tennant was Roman's manager. And a little physical pushing match happened, and Roman had them thrown out of the house. Mm -hmm. And Billy Doyle, more than one witness, said that he was going to come back and kill everybody in the house. And that was in February or March, that party. So when the bodies were discovered, among other things, there was PIC or PIG written in blood on the front door and Sharon Tate's blood. So once the police learned that there had been this altercation and this threat and that one of the people was picked, P.I.C. Dawson, mm -hmm. they originally believed that those guys had come back and 
killed everybody for revenge and that there was probably a drug deal involved. But the LAPD later cleared them. I'm still not sure. I mean, if people read the book, they see I'm still not sure (laughs) that they weren't somehow involved. I mean, I found evidence that they actually knew the Manson family members, uh, Charles Taco, at least. And I interviewed three of the guys. I actually have never published anything about the Harrigan interview I did. I think I'm the only one to have interviewed him in decades. He was actually named in the papers Mm. and obtained a lawyer, Paul Caruso, who later became Susan Atkins' attorney and was on the front page of the LA Times as the leading suspects in the murder and was questioned for two or three days. And he went on to be a, a pretty famous criminal back in Canada and in Florida, stealing jewels and drugs. And he went to prison. He was part of a gang. And he got out I think about 10 years ago, and I located him and had several long phone conversations with him, which I didn't have in time for my book. So that's probably going to be part of book two. Mm. But yeah, so I'm still not sure that those, I mean, I don't want to spoil what he said to me, but he didn't say to me anything like, oh yeah, we did do it. (laughs) But there's some compelling stuff in what he said. I still have not settled on one way or one motive for these murders. As crazy as that sounds after all these years. Yeah. Yeah, it is a very thick web of associations. and Yeah, yeah. Wasn't one of them possibly anally sodomized while they were unconscious at a party? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I even got that firsthand from Charles. Billy Doyle, who was really kind of the most dangerous of the four guys, he was just, you know, like a psychotic, drug-addicted thug who was using Mama Cass to kind of get entree into Hollywood. Mm -hmm. He was dating Mama Cass off and on, and actually so was Pick Dawson. And at one point, he was dealing drugs to or with Wojciech, and he got high at a party at the Tate House when Roman was gone. But I'm pretty sure Sharon was back when this happened. I know that Sharon had met Doyle a bunch of times in the three weeks before she died. Mm -hmm. And at this party, according to a couple of eyewitnesses, including Charles Taco, who was really Doyle's partner and best friend, who he told me his version, that he believes Wojciech and possibly Jay drugged Billy and then anally raped him. Mm -hmm. And he had been called up to the house because Doyle had passed out. And he went up to get him and he said his pants were torn, you know, in the back. And he was bleeding and he brought him to Mama Cass's house and he chained him to a tree for, I think, two days until he calmed down because he was just raging about going back and killing them. Bugliosi doesn't write about that incident, which to me is even more of a reason that they should have been suspected as possible suspects in the murders, you know, than just having a little pushing match with Kolansky's manager in February. This happened in July, you know, less than a month before the murders. He was raped at the house mm-hmm. by two of the victims, if the story's true. Anyway, Taco said that once he calmed down, he got Doyle out of the country to keep him from doing something like what did happen. Mm. Took him to Jamaica. But, you know, I don't go into it too much in the book. Their alibis in Jamaica are not very strong. Mm -hmm. And Doyle was actually cited in Los Angeles by two different people around the time of the murders. Mm. Yeah. Well, so 
Enter Charles Manson, mm-hmm. who was the head of the family that sent his children to the Tate LaBianca residences to commit the murders. Yeah. He was a career criminal that was the son of a prostitute and spent the majority of his life in correctional institutions. Manson was a con man, thief, pimp, and quite possibly a psychopath. Mm-hmm. Above all, he was very charismatic. Can you talk a little bit about how Manson used LSD to sort of psychologically groom his family members and talk a little bit about the way they lived together? Yeah, yeah. Well, Manson, you know, after he got released in 1967 from about seven, eight years in prison, he migrated from L.A. where he was paroled to San Francisco right at the precipice of the Summer of Love. He got there in March, April of 67. And, you know, he was panhandling on the streets of Berkeley and, you know, he learned how to play guitar in prison and didn't like the Beatles, supposedly, but, you know, it was more of like a Woody Guthrie kind of fan. And anyway, he would perform and all of a sudden he saw the opportunities to be made with a lot of young women who had come to San Francisco in search of the whole hippie kind of experience. And he started using his charisma to seduce women, and he built a harem of about a half dozen of them in the first three or four months after he was out of prison. And once he took his first LSD trip and discovered the power of LSD, that's the official story. He might have known about it a lot longer even before he got out of prison. But anyway, he learned how to use LSD to administer to these women, mostly women in San Francisco. I don't think he had any real hardcore men followers until he got to L.A., Mm -hmm. but he would use it to kind of uh, break down their resistance. And this is something Nicholas Shrek and I disagree about, but learn how to basically make them his subservience. Mm -hmm. Then he moved the whole group down to Los Angeles, famously first into Dennis Wilson's house. Well, actually, they were living in different squats and stuff in Topanga Canyon. But then for about a month or two, they lived at Dennis Wilson's house until he threw them out then migrated to the Spawn Ranch in Chatsworth, where he really isolated them and the family grew. They became more of a criminal enterprise, you know, stealing automobiles, repurposing them as dune buggies, you know, stealing drugs. And at that point, he really cut off the group from their families, their friends. They had all been given new names, kind of classic brainwashing Mm -hmm. techniques. But LSD was really probably the main method he used to get these people to become his servants. And he never took it, or he barely took it. You know, he would give them high dosages for consecutive days, but he would not take it himself so he could maintain, you know, control over them all. Mm -hmm. I saw in a television documentary And I don't think I read it in the book, but I was wondering if you had ever come across this piece of information that while Manson was in prison, he got a hold of a copy of How to Win Friends and Influence People. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's supposedly true. Is it? Again, you got different versions of how well he could read. I mean, I have a lot of his early prison reports from before 67, where they said he had the reading skills of like a third grader. Uh-huh. But the Dale Carnegie book, you know, it's basically how to be a con artist, a salesperson. <laughs> Supposedly that was his Bible for a few years. So I don't know what his reading 
skills really were, whether they were good or not. But I believe that's true. I mean, that's unofficial reports of evaluations and stuff that he was quoting Dale Carnegie. I think he took a course. They had Dale Carnegie courses in prison, Mm -hmm. you know, because they were trying to rehabilitate the people and get them to do some other kind of professions besides (laughs) whatever got them in there in the first place when they were released. Yeah. You know, I mean, even if he did have like a third grade level reading ability, I mean, you've got nothing but time when you're in prison. True. He could have just inched his way through it. (laughs) Yeah, he studied Scientology, supposedly in prison. The one thing you can say about him is he had a very curious mind, which probably is one of the ways he could educate himself. Mm hmm. Well, for the longest time, the definitive word and text of the Manson murders was a book that you've alluded to already called Helter Skelter, which was written by Vincent Bugliosi, who was the prosecutor on the case, which I don't know. I think I would say that's a bit of a conflict of interest in the first place. But Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. He had his co-author <laughs> in the courtroom. Oh, from, God. You know, the pretrial hearings through the very end of it, mm-hmm. which now actually the rules in the Bar Association that forbid that. Mm. At the time, there was nothing on paper. I believe he didn't tell anyone, you know, that he was doing this. I'm sure the judge wouldn't have allowed it if he knew it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, he saw that as a golden ticket out of the DA's office. He wanted to enter politics, he wanted to either be the attorney general of California, which he ran for, the district attorney of Los Angeles, which he ran for. His aspirations probably went all the way to the top. Oh, yeah. But that was all ruined by his other bad personal behavior that came out during the campaigns. But that's all after the Manson case, you know, had made him wealthy and famous. Well, of all the strange motives attributed to the murders, the one he brought to court and the one he showcased in his book was an elaborate dystopian conspiracy, which was called Helter Skelter, the book's title. Right. Right. And in a nutshell, Helter Skelter was a race war. Right, right. But based on your findings, this motive doesn't really hold water. So who do you think devised this story and what do you think they were hoping to accomplish by exposing the public to the particulars of the story? Well, I do believe that Manson preached the Helter Skelter race war to his followers. Mm -hmm. And if I had to bet on it, I would say that the ones who killed for him, the ones who went that extra yard all believed in it. But I'm certain that Manson was just using it as another way to control the followers. He was way too smart to believe in himself. And I think I write about this in the book. One of my biggest regrets is never being able to confront Bugliosi with earlier interviews he'd given that I had not known about. You know, I thought I read every single one of them, but I missed one in Penthouse. (laughs) I guess it was harder to get Penthouse in the late 90s. Maybe even today, those stories aren't online. Mm. But in one of the early interviews he did after the convictions, and I think even before his book came out, or maybe it was in conjunction with Helter Skelter coming out, was that he didn't believe that Manson believed in Helter Skelter himself. That Manson was, like I said, too smart. Mm. That he just used it. And what the reporter should have asked him was, well, then if he didn't believe in it, then That was your argument for why the murders occurred, that he wanted to start a race war by implicating the Panthers in these murders of the Tate victims the first night and the LaBianca couple the second night. Well, if it wasn't to start a race war, then what was the reason that they were selected and killed? 
And unfortunately, I never got to ask him that because our relationship kind of, we got divorced in about <laughs> 2007 or eight when he started threatening me with all kinds of terrible stuff mm-hmm. and wouldn't talk to me anymore. Mm. But yeah, so the helter skelter motive, I don't believe that that was the reason the murders happened. But I do believe that it's quite possible that the women and I don't think Watson believed it, but the women might have actually believed in this crazy waste war that Vincent had prophesized. Hmm. Well, can you tell us about some of the contradictions, omissions, and I believe I remember outright falsehoods in Bugliosi's book? Yeah, there's quite a few, but one of the central ones that I focused on, because it was such an important part of his helter-skelter narrative, you know, he makes quite a lot of an argument in Helter Skelter for how difficult it was to convict Manson of especially the Tate murders, because in his narrative, the official narrative, Manson wasn't at that crime scene. Mm. So if he didn't participate in the murders of the five people at Tate, then how could he be convicted by a jury? So Bugliosi had to show conspiracy that he had ordered them. And one of the most important things he had to show was not only had he ordered them, but he had told them where to go, which was the house on Cielo, and according to his narrative, to kill everybody in the house. So the main two witnesses he got that would vouch for that narrative was Terry Melcher, who was Doris Day's son and a very successful in his own right record producer at a very young age. I think he was in his mid to late 20s when the murders happened. Terry had lived in the house before Roman and Sharon, with his then-girlfriend Candace Bergen, the actress. And Melcher had had, in the official version, I have to keep saying the official version, about three encounters with Manson. Manson supposedly was trying to get a record contract and was trying to get Terry, who was one of the biggest producers in the business, to get him signed to a label and produce him. And Melcher famously rejected him. But what I found in my reporting was that Melcher actually had a much more profound relationship with Manson. He even had family members living at the house while he was there. And then he even went to see Manson several times after the murders had occurred. So this was completely contrary to all of his testimony at a number of trials. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Vince called him one of his most important witnesses because he was able to convict Manson based on Terry's testimony that, yes, Manson had been to the house, hadn't been into it, but just once when he dropped them off, but he knew where he lived. He had been trying to find him. So I just found out, you know, that was one of the first discoveries I had. First, I got it in interviews, but I didn't trust the interview subjects because I thought they were either conflating, misremembering, because at that point it was 30 some years after but it pushed me to find actual contemporaneous records of what they told the police. And the same people had told the police at the time about this much more intensive relationship. So Bugliosi, not only did he cover that up and withhold that information from the defense, he allowed Melcher and some other witnesses to lie on the stand, which is pretty serious in a capital case, Hmm. knowing that the people who were on trial could eventually be executed and, Of course, they were convicted and given death sentences, but the state Supreme Court of California overturned death penalties in the mid-70s, so they all got their death sentences commuted and changed to life in prison with the possibility of parole. 
So that's where Bugliosi's case started falling apart once I started getting access to some of the primary witnesses who had never given interviews before and getting this information. And then I got access to files and documents that other reporters hadn't seen. But that didn't happen overnight. That took a long time, you know, to get that stuff. Hmm. Well, when you think about an operation to incite a race war, it sounds very similar to an operation that the uh, FBI perpetrated called COINTELPRO. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about this operation and how it possibly relates to the murders? Yeah, yeah. Well, simultaneously to Manson, the official version, trying to incite this race war, you know, pitching the whites against the blacks. Nobody knew it except the FBI. They had a secret operation called COINTELPRO, which was created originally to kind of reign control over the Panthers, the Black Panthers, which formed in like 66, 67 in Oakland. And the Panthers were getting much more popular and much more powerful. So J. Edgar Hoover organized this, reorganized it. The COINTELPRO had actually existed in the 40s and 50s. Ironically, they were trying to basically stop the Ku Klux Klan. But then in the 60s, 67, it was revived to stop the Panthers. And then it was also used against the left-wing anti-war movement, free speech movement. And one of the things that COINTELPRO agents were trying to do was to distill trust in the white left-wing, not so much radical movement, but to make the whites stop trusting the Blacks and the Black Panthers. By 1968, there was something called the White Panther Party, and it was white people who had money and were funding and supporting the Panthers. And in Los Angeles, famously Jane Fonda, Donald Sutherland, Marlon Brando, there were a group of high-profile actors who were very outspoken supporters of the Panthers, and J. Edgar Hoover wanted those people to think in fact, there's a memo that Hoover wrote about a year before the Tate murders happened, that they had to make the whites think that when the Black Revolution finally happened, the first ones to be killed would be the whites. I think that his lines were that they would be the first ones lined up against the walls and shot. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the same time Manson was trying to instigate a race war, so was the FBI, or at least make people think a race war was going to happen unless they clamped down on the Black Panthers. And to a lesser degree on the anti-war movement, which Hoover and Lyndon Johnson and later Nixon and Governor Reagan all thought, you know, was a the biggest threat to national security at the time was the left-wing anti-war movement and the Black activism movement. Mm. So COINTELPRO was basically an arm of uh, defense against what they thought was a revolution that was about to happen. Hmm. Well, you kind of alluded to it tongue-in-cheek earlier about you and Bugliosi getting a divorce. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah. you had some interaction with him as a result of your book. Can you tell us a little about the man and your interactions with him? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he was one of the first people I reached out. I, I got a magazine assignment. I was supposed to turn it around in three months, just write about whatever I wanted to the magazine. I worked with my editor for a long time at that point. She said, it's the 30th anniversary of this very kind of momentous crime, you know, that's kind of a cultural landmark in American history, the way it kind of changed people's perceptions of the hippie movement, drugs, free love. All of a sudden it became dangerous and violent. 
mostly because of the Manson murders. Other stuff happened that same summer, the Altamont killings by the Hells Angels at the big concert in Northern California. And I didn't think I'd get access to Bugliosi, especially at anniversary time, because there were other magazines that were more prominent than ours. Mm. But he agreed to be interviewed by me. And he was not the first interview, but the second or third. I went to his house, you know, was greeted warmly by he and his wife, you know, had cookies and coffee at the kitchen table. The interview began. Vince took me on a tour of some of the better known locations of where the family committed crimes or hung out. And we went out to lunch. We went back to his house. And then we started talking on the phone, you know, almost every second or third day for two or three weeks, four weeks. And when I started finding discrepancies and pretty innocently just asking him about, you know, you say this in the book, but there's some evidence here that that happened. He would get real defensive and nervous, and you could tell in his voice. I mean, the one thing Vince couldn't do is hide his emotions, even on telephone calls. <laughs> so this went on for two or three months, and then I finally thought, I've got to pull away from him, because I also found out he was monitoring who I was talking to. And I can't prove it, but I think he actually was talking to people I was going to talk to before I talked to them. I know he did after. Mm. I actually heard recorded calls that he had left on their machines about me. So anyway, I completely pulled away from him, got extensions for the deadline. It wasn't going to coincide anymore with the anniversary. So the three-month deadline was blown out the window after like a month. But December of the first year, I began it in March. In December, I think it was, I got a phone call from Vince asking me to call him that it was very important. He was wondering, you know, why I hadn't talked to him for a few months. And he kept saying, I heard this, I heard that. He goes, I just want to make sure that if there's anything you don't understand about my conduct in the trial, that you have to give me the opportunity to explain it because you as a lay person might not understand like the nuances of mm -hmm. law and criminal prosecution. I said, absolutely, of course, Vince. So again, long story short, the magazine story never happened. I ended up getting a book deal. And once I got the book deal, six years later, I reached out to him to have that conversation, to show him the evidence I had that he had suborned perjury at trial, you know, hidden evidence, all kinds of stuff. And at first he played his game with me, he pretended not to know who I was mm -hmm. and not remember me. And then he said he did remember me, but he had heard terrible things about me that made him decide not to ever want to have anything to do with me again. And people read the book, they'll see <laughs> what all that was about and how he had used that with other people he perceived as enemies. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we finally met at his house. He had to know what I was going to publish because he needed to try to stop it before it happened. Mm -hmm. And it was a very explosive day at the same house that had been so nice, you know, six years earlier. He was screaming and cursing at me and threatening me and I left the house and got tons and tons of calls from him. And then finally, the letters started coming to my publisher that if they were stupid enough to publish my book, he would not only sue them, but he would own Penguin Random. Well, it wasn't Random House. It owned Penguin, own all their future publishing earnings. He told me that he would own me the rest of my life, that every nickel I made. I mean, he was crazier and crazier. <laughs> and he kept trying to get me not to publish what he knew I had. And then finally, he told me that we were adversaries now. And the next time he would see me would be in a courtroom when he would personally cross-examine me. Mm. So that was probably 2006 or seven or eight that we stopped talking.
and then he passed away. Unfortunately, I think around 2015, and I really, really wanted the book out before he passed away because I wanted him to have the answer mm. for it. You know, it would have been a tougher book to get published, but the reason Penguin canceled it, if they're telling me the truth, was not because they were frightened of his letters, but they were about to merge with Random House, and Random House didn't want any of these books that had been kind of lingering for a long time with these large advances. Mm. They couldn't be completed right away. They wanted to cut them. Mm. Anyway, it went through a rigorous fact check with my publishers who did do it, Little Brown, and I was really glad because I was nervous too. You know, I knew that Vince couldn't sue me because he was dead, but his estate could sue me because my book disparages his book. Mm. And his widow and his kids could have taken me to court and sued me for lessening the value of Helter Skelter. I mean, if what Vince said before he died many, many, many times is true, it's the best-selling true crime book of all time. Mm. Actually, that was one of the most surprising things. We thought there were going to be a lot of potential lawsuits, and the book came out in 2019, and not one person sued us. And I think it's because my reporting holds up. And I heard some people talking about suing me, some of the people in the book telling other people, but they couldn't because they have what they call discovery, and I could have demanded them to release documents. I was happy to release all of mine, and they'd never do that because my reporting held up. Mm. Well, so on... One side of Manson, you've got the prosecution and all of its craziness. Then on the other side, he was assigned to a parole officer named Roger Smith. Yeah. And he had a strange relationship with Manson. Yeah. Can you tell us about the strange recommendations he made to the parole board with regard to Manson, as well as the odd things that you found that he recorded in his reports? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, through Freedom of Information Act requests to the Bureau of Parole, I was able to get the file on Manson from 1967 when he was released in California until 1969 when he went back to jail and then to prison for good. That process took more than two years. I actually have them right in front of me now because I'm working on something in them. I would get documents, but they'd have tons of redactions. I'd have to appeal. I'm looking at them now. There's still large redactions. I still haven't gotten the complete file. But from what I got, I saw that not only was Roger Smith, Manson's first parole officer when he was released, lenient, he had the power to recommend that he be returned to prison. All he had to do was pick up a phone, and he didn't time and time again while Manson was not just committing small crimes, but, you know, crimes not that small if you're a cop, interfering with the cop and duty. A cop was trying to arrest one of his 15, 16-year-old followers, Ruth Ann Morehouse, to get her away from him, back to her mother. And Manson interfered with that, which is a serious, you know, that's a felony. He should have been sent right back to prison. That was, I think, about three months after his release. Roger didn't recommend revocation. And he also saw Manson up close gathering this harem of women and using them as basically pawns in his criminal activities and enterprises. And during that time, I think what you're alluding to is I found these requests that Smith, who was based in Northern California, made to the D.C. office. Manson was a federal parolee, so Mm. he asked twice that Manson be given permission to go to Mexico, Mm. which is just insane because (laughs) 
The last time Manson was free was in Mexico in 1960. He got extradited by the Mexican federales to Laredo, Texas. And this is something Bugliosi never even mentions. He just talks about him being brought from Texas for a, a probation violation and brought from Laredo back to Los Angeles, where he is sent to prison until 1967. But something happened in Mexico. We're still not sure what, but he was picked up and brought. There should be a record of it that I'm trying to get, but that's a whole nother story. Mm. And for some reason in 67, Smith wrote to the U.S. offices and said that he wanted Manson to go to Mexico to work on his music. And he had a potential gig in Maslatan, I think it was, performing. And, you know, obviously Manson can't be supervised <laughs> in Mexico in another country. Why is he going back to the country? It was the last place that he was free. Mm-hmm. And then when they said absolutely not, a month later, he wrote them again and said that Manson had a job opportunity doing scientific analysis of soil <laughs> In Mexico. The guy with the third grade reading. With yeah, with a guy with a guy named Dean Morehouse, who was one of his followers, who was an older minister who had been turned on to LSD and become kind of this crazy guru himself. And then he followed Manson and gave this daughter the same Ruth Ann that the mother had tried to get, you know, six months earlier. Mm. So Roger asked that Manson be allowed to accompany Dean Morehouse, who was on federal parole himself, to Mexico. I mean, it was insane. It was insane. (laughs) And, you know, there's tons of evidence of other stuff going on in Manson's supervision that, to this day, I still haven't quite figured out. But I'm getting closer Mm. to learning what was the true reason Roger sent him to Mexico. So I... It's in the book. But, you know, I finally confronted Roger with these documents in his own hand. And he claimed to have no recollection of wanting to send Manson to Mexico. First, he denied it. And then when he looked at the paperwork, he said, actually, that's my handwriting. Why would I send him to Mexico? And that was one of the most frustrating things. And I'm sure a lot of journalists have this. I mean, was he deliberately lying to me or did he truly not remember? You know, I finally had to do the what if. Uh I mean, Roger, how can you, I mean, put yourself back to 1967 what on earth good do you think it would have done to release him from supervision when he was already so out of control and send him to a foreign country where, again, that was his last place he was free? So Roger couldn't answer that. Mm. Well, Roger Smith was the one that actually recommended that Manson go to the hate ashbury neighborhood where right, right. the hippie movement was in full bloom because he said that the peace and love atmosphere would help Manson, I guess, stay out of trouble, for lack of a better phrase. But at some point, Manson began seeing Smith in an office he had at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, which Manson and his girls frequented because of pregnancy issues, STDs, and the like. Right, right. So, Yeah, well, Roger had an office there because Roger was actually getting his, I guess, his master's degree in criminology, And he was interested in the effect of drugs on youth and crime. So he was doing a thesis. Speed was just kind of exploding in the hate. Mm. In late 1967, it was like everybody was doing LSD and then Speed got in. So he got a grant from the federal government to do a study. And David Smith, who had opened the clinic the year before in 1967, 
gave him the basement of the building to have what he called his amphetamine research project. So Manson had already been frequenting the clinic for medical care for the women, but now Smith, instead of having Manson come to his office at the parole building, which was like a part-time job for Roger, Mm. he would have him come to the clinic to see him there. And, you know, Roger was doing like two or three different things at the same time, all of them very questionable. I, I mean, it's too complicated to get into now, but the whole parole supervision of Manson was part of an experiment called the San Francisco Project, which had been initiated about the year before to study recidivism and the relationship between a subject and his parole officer. And if they saw them enough and supervised them enough, was that more likely or less likely to keep them on track? And part of this experiment resulted in Manson being Roger Smith's only parolee by the time mm-hmm. his his stewardship <laughs> of Manson ended. It's just the craziest story. And to this day, I still feel I've only got like 60% of it figured out. Well, within the free clinic, you found some ties to the MK Ultra program. Well, I found one. I mean, there was a scientist. Yeah. I mean, there were people peripherally involved in the clinic who kind of came in and out, who definitely had ties to the CIA. And the MK Ultra was their brainwashing program that was a secret at the time and was supposed to have been maintained as a secret until whistleblowers outed it in the mid 70s. But one of the main researchers, Dr. Lewis West, Jolly and West, they called him Jolly, was given an office at the clinic the first summer to recruit subjects for his quote-unquote studies of LSD and its influence on youth. Mm -hmm. And he was a very prominent psychiatrist, academic. At the time, he ran the psychiatry department at University of Oklahoma. And in 69, he moved to UCLA and ran their neuroscience department and psychiatry department there until he retired. And when MK Ultra was exposed, first by some journalists and then in congressional hearings, he was named actually on the front page of the New York Times as somebody who had secretly done these horrific experiments, you know, using LSD and other drugs on people without their knowledge mm. or consent. And he denied it and he was never investigated. They took that at face value. I mean, I talked to his the presidents of Oklahoma and UCLA about what kind of investigation was done when these allegations were made, and they said the same thing that he said. Well, he told us he wasn't involved, that it was a lie, and they never used LSD on humans. <laughs> that was good enough. And I'm like, I can show you published <laughs> papers where he talks about using LSD on humans. Anyway, another very long story short, I found out that during the time that he was at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, he was still part of the MKUltra program, and he died, I think, less than a year before I began this work, and his name didn't come up until a year or two after I had begun, and it's a whole other crazy irony, but I had actually interviewed him years before for another story about violent celebrity stalkers, and knew exactly who he was, but nothing of the CIA history or alleged history. Mm. But I was able, when I found out he was dead, I got into his archive and found the actual paperwork that he had accidentally left in his collection. And it was correspondence between him and the head of the CIA brainwashing MK Ultra program, Sidney Gottlieb, discussing their experiments, what they were going to do, how they were going to do it without getting discovered, not only by the 
experimental subjects by the academic institutions. And at the time he began, he was at Lackland Air Force Base. So everything he said in the press, in public, that he had never had any association with them, I proved to be a lie. And I thought it was pretty consequential that at the time that Manson emerged from the hate as this guru with these incredible powers, one of the most prominent people who were trying to learn how to create the exact kind of power Manson had, Jolly West, was doing his research and experiments in the same place that Manson went to probably a couple times a week. Hmm. Well, speaking of Lackland Air Force Base, MKUltra, and brainwashing, there was a very strange case of an airman from Lackland Air Force Base that had been undergoing an experimental treatment protocol for severe migraines. And one night at a local bar, just kind of just went insane and committed a horrific crime. A man by the name of Jimmy Shaver. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not a well-known story. I only learned about it because I spent the summer in the basement of the Charles Young Library at UCLA in their special collections department going through, I think at that time it was 60 boxes of West records that had been released in response to my request. You know, he had bequeathed everything to UCLA, but it hadn't even been processed because he'd only been dead a year. But I got them through a lot of pleading and begging Mm -hmm. to start processing a box at a time. The golden needle in the haystack was finding the CIA correspondence, but I also found his records of being the psychiatrist of Jimmy Shaver, who was assigned to learn what actually happened the night that Jimmy Shaver just completely uncharacteristically, this guy was an airman who had no history of crime or violence, married man with two small kids, in the middle of the night, abducted this three-year-old girl, and a search party was organized. And at about three or four in the morning, they found him, Shaver, wandering around this kind of isolated field, and his shirt was off, and he had blood and scratches. And the people who found him said that he was in a daze. He didn't know where he was or why he was there. And they eventually found nearby the body of the three-year-old girl next to his abandoned car. Mm. And she had been raped and murdered. And he complained complete amnesia of it. And West was assigned to this case to use his... Again, nobody knew. He had begun working in MKUltra a year before. It had only been formed in the CIA like a year before that, as MKUltra had had some earlier iterations. And in his letters to Gottlieb, he says he's going to experiment on Army people and patients at Lackland Air Force Base without their knowledge, giving them drugs and seeing if he can create fugue states, amnesias, implant false memories, replace them with true memories. So this was, you know, it was a well-known case in Texas when it occurred in Lackland, but that was 1954. Mm. And nothing had been written about it or reported for when I came across it in the late 90s, except every, you know, five or 10 year anniversary, there'd be a three paragraph story in the local paper because Shaver was convicted and then executed on his birthday, I think in 1958. And he went to his death claiming still amnesia of what happened that night. So I make the circumstantial argument that this was actually one of West's early experiments that went wrong. 
I'm sure he didn't want what happened to happen. Mm. So that's an interesting chapter in the book that, you know, it's another thing that kind of haunts me because I still felt like there was more information out there to get. And it's one of the things I'm kind of revisiting now as I prepare the follow-up book. And you mentioned he worked, referring to Jolly West, he was a professor at UCLA. Was that where he got the graduate students for his, quote, hippie crash pad? No, no, that was Oklahoma. That was Oklahoma. So he didn't go to, okay. yeah, he didn't go to UCLA until the winter of 69, but he went to the Haight-Ashbury. And he actually went to Stanford in 66 on a one-year fellowship. And he had told them that get the fellowship and the grant. He said he was going to write a book, I can't remember what it was called, but it was how to manipulate people's behavior. Mm. And about halfway through this research, all of a sudden he changed his plan and left Stanford. They had given him housing, moved into the hate, grew his hair long, recruited graduate students he'd had at Oklahoma mm. to come out to the hate. And he said, grow your hair long, dress like a hippie. We're going to have a laboratory described as a hippie crash pad where we're going to lure people in off the streets and study their behavior. It's all in the book. Everything I found was crazier than what I found before. It would just get wilder and wilder. And Jolly West, I mean, even to his death, never admitted that he had worked on MK Ultra, did he? Oh, no, no. He threatened to sue people. You know, newspapers would write it. And when I started doing my research on him, when I realized he could be a significant character in this story, mm -hmm. I started reading that there were rumors, but nobody could ever prove it because nobody had ever had any direct knowledge of him working in it. And the most he would tell, he told this to the New York Times in 1977, he says, they approached me and asked me to be part of the program. And I said, no. And I advised them not to use LSD on humans because it was too unpredictable and I would never do it. Mm -hmm. And again, that contradicted his own papers that had been published in academic journals, peer-reviewed stuff, where he talked about using LSD on patients and studying their reactions, not the secret stuff he was doing for the CIA. But again, I don't know where these journalists were back then to let him get away with all that, because <laughs> I could prove it 20 years later, even before I found the letters. Mm. But anyway, he got away with it, just like I think Bugliosi got away with not being alive for when my book came out. Mm. Well, it is a fascinating book. Listeners at home, buy it, read it, and follow its evolution into what it sounds like a book, too, you said? Yeah, yeah, I'm working on a follow-up, hoping that it doesn't take 20 years like the last one. I'm going to work with the same collaborator I had, who was this young whippersnapper <laughs> who was able to get, from the day he started working with me, we turned the book around in about, I think, 16 months. You know, after, at that point, 17 or 18 years of me struggling with it, he came in and we just got everything together and got it out there, and I was happy with it. He's happy with it, so he's going to work on the next one with me, too. Okay. Well, just wanted to ask you one more question, because I don't know that I've ever heard it asked before. What are you doing these days to relax and keep yourself sane? <laughs> <laughs> Who said I was sane? <laughs> Who said I'm relaxed? <laughs> well, that... uh, Here's what I'm doing that's different than prior to the publication of the book. Mm -hmm. I'm trying not to work on weekends. I'm trying to take vacations. 
I'm trying not to work after like five or six o'clock at night. I'm trying not to make it my whole life anymore. Mm. The biggest fear in the 20 years was that I was going to drop dead of old age or get killed at an earlier age by a bus or something <laughs> and have all of this stuff for naught, you mm. know, and that I was haunted by the fact that I would have wasted 20 years. So now that the book's out and I'm proud of it, I can relax more. But I really did not think I was going to do a second book after it came out. I wanted to do something entirely different. But it was, you know, all the gnawing questions that, you know, I have so much information that didn't end up in the first book and all these loose ends that I just didn't have time, believe it or not, with 20 years to finish. And now I'm back doing that stuff, but I'm trying not to be as obsessive about it as I was. Yeah. So I'm honestly having a much better time now than I did before. <laughs> Good to hear. Yeah. Well, Tom, it has been fascinating talking with you. Oh, yeah, it was fun. Thank you. So as we bring the show to a close, I mean, you already kind of spoke about book two. Is there anything that you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Uh, yeah, you know, I post this stuff. I don't know if that's how you found me, but I've got an Instagram page, a YouTube page. I mean, I hate to sound like a 20-year-old, but I've got <laughs> social media now where I'm teasing a lot of the stuff, either stuff I've already reported but haven't shared or new stuff that I'm actually chasing. I'm throwing stuff out there in videos or slideshows of documents and stuff. I can never remember what they're called, but if you Google my name and Manson, It'll direct you to my Instagram page. And I think the easiest way to look at this stuff is either on the Instagram or the YouTube. There's a lot more on Instagram because YouTube only allows videos, I think. Hmm. I'm still trying to figure out how to do it. It's all homemade and self-taught, just kind of like the book was. But I think I'm getting a little better at it. I mean, if people have read the book, they're going to understand the importance of every post. If they haven't read the book, it might be confusing, but people want to see new stuff for whatever reason. And, you know, I got sucked in too. People are fascinated by not just the crime, the original crime, you know, the tape murders, but also all the stuff that happened before and after a lot of the government stuff too. So I'm putting a lot of original reporting up there. So that's the one plug I can think of right now. All right. Well, listeners at home, all links are in the description and Tom, Thank you again for joining me. Thanks, Vince. It was fun. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast newsletter by clicking the link in the description. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Something better I can see